Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer Review is Teresa Kenyon. She's an incredibly talented subrogation attorney and admittedly the director of lien resolution for Synergy Settlement Services. I wanted her to be a guest on the podcast given her background and experience in an area very relevant to trial lawyers. I'm going to give you a little bit of her background. I'm going to read a little bit because she's got a pretty extensive background. Uh, Teresa spent almost a decade with the Rawlings Group, the largest health insurance subrogation company in the industry. She managed subrogation operations and served as in-house counsel for Rawlings Operating Center in Los Angeles. She represented the nation's top health insurance carriers, including Aetna, Blue Shield, and HealthNet. She has extensive knowledge of laws pertaining to healthcare subrogation, including the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, better known as ERISA, uh, Federal Employees Health Benefits Act, better known as FEBA, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, as well as state laws nationwide. Her team here at Synergy works to reduce these health insurance liens and more on behalf of injured claimants. Teresa graduated from the University of California, Irvine with a degree in psychology, like me, my, that was my same undergraduate degree, and she earned her JD from the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, Teresa. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before getting into the law stuff, I know that you relocated from California not too long ago and are now enjoying living on the beach here on the east coast of Florida. Uh, still a culture shock going from Los Angeles to Florida? Yes and no. Um, I mean, it's definitely different, but um, I like change. So it it felt it feels good to be in a different place. And I keep getting asked, do you miss California? And my answer is not yet, um, but I'm sure I will eventually. And I'll make a trip. I'll make a visit. We probably don't miss the income tax. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. income tax is, is not present here in Florida. It's a nice omission considering what that does for, for our paychecks here in Florida. So definitely definitely a plus all right so um let's talk a little bit about how you got into the practice of law what was the single biggest reason for you making uh, the practice of law your career well it really comes down to i wanted to help people um like you mentioned i was a psychology degree and that was really my intention right out of high school was i wanted to help people and um 
really with that psychology degree, I got into various jobs where I was I was helping people, but they didn't want to be helped. So I worked in a psychiatric hospital um, with teenagers, so that, that had its level of difficulty. I worked for Child Protective Services, where I was helping the children, but the parents weren't too happy with me. Um, so I was doing a lot of things where I was helping, but I didn't feel like I was helping. Um, so really, I, it then turned to like, well, let's get into the law where I can actually help people. And my intention was to be a personal injury attorney. It's funny because uh, we're, we're very similar in that regard because I was interested in psychology in terms of helping people. And uh, when I was trying to decide what to do in between undergrad and, and go and ultimately making a decision to go to law school, I worked at the um, Orange County Court Alternatives in the Mental Health Unit. So in the Orlando Main 33rd Street Jail on the psychiatric ward, which was a really interesting experience, uh, but made me decide I really didn't want to deal with the psychiatric side of things and really made me uh, interested more in pursuing the law. So uh, interesting that we've got sort of that shared background. Um, so I know Rawlings is based in Kentucky. Is that how you wound up getting into subrogation law since you went to school, uh, law school in Kentucky? Because it's a rather yes. specialized area of the law. And it seems like the people that wind up in that specialized area are coming out of Kentucky. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. Um, Kentucky is, is where perhaps where it started. I mean, that's certainly the, the lingo um, at the Rawlings company is that it started there with Rawlings. But um, yes, so I graduated law school and I got a job with a personal injury firm that a couple months later fell apart. So then I found myself jobless with the uh, bar license and um, Rawlings was advertising with um, some legal words in their in their listings and so I ended up joining them um, had no idea what I was getting into but I did know that I didn't want to work for an insurance company um, and that's exactly what I ended up doing so I had to talk myself into just that you know that I'm still dealing with medicals I'm dealing with injured people I'm dealing with the law but um, wasn't quite what I had in mind but I made it work just the wrong side we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit but... <laughs> yeah. So, given your almost decade with Rawlings, I thought that you could offer trial lawyers some unique insights into the minds and operations of these recovery contractors like Rawlings. So, let's talk a little bit about that. How does a recovery contractor like Rawlings make money? Yeah, well, they have contracts with health insurance carriers. So, um, those are your your Aetna, Kaiser. Highmark, um, Blue Cross, I mean, there's, there's so many of them, right? Um, and so those um, insurance carriers often have in-house subrogation units. Um, some still do, but it's, it, they've been approached to outsource their subrogation work. And um, so companies like Rawlings and Optum and Conduent um, and various defense firms have popped up. Um, and so there's it's, it's a contract and their, their pay is based on their results. So it's very much a contingency type of agreement. Um, the, I, I believe like over time, the amount of the contingency has decreased because there have become, there's become more competition in the market. Um, so I've heard that originally it used to be a third. So whatever it is that a company like Rawlings collected, 
if they collected a $100,000 recovery check for the $200,000 in medical expenses that were paid, they got a third um, that, of that 100000 that they got to keep for themselves. Um, I think that those numbers have decreased into the low teens, um, but it depends on the contract, depends on the client, depends on lots of things. Are, are there any other things that you think are important for trial lawyers to understand about the business model of these recovery contractors? Well, I mean, I think the, really having an understanding that, that there is that financial incentive for that vendor, um, you know, that's that's just there. Um, and really, like, there's, there's still financial incentive for a lot of the employees as well. Uh, depends on the company, but many of the uh, handlers that are, that are handling these liens that trial attorneys are talking to on a regular basis at Optum or Conduit, they might get a piece of that check as well for their bonus. Um, not all, every company is, is run a little bit differently, but um, there is usually some kind of bonus that is attached to it by way of performance and performance is judged by how little reduction you give. So uh, that's what they're trying to do is reduce as little as possible um, and then move on to the next file. So talking about those file handlers, my understanding is is that they don't just have a few files. They're they're loaded down with files. So they're quickly trying to resolve but yet you know, achieve their bonus by, you know, recovering the most dollars. Is that sort of the the, the general idea out there? Yeah, definitely. Um and even, you know, in in my role here, I've interviewed many people from other companies that have joined my team now, um, and they're all pretty similar, you know, across the board with with the company. So anywhere from 500 files to 1,000 files or even 1,500 files, um, definite high volume. Um, and then really to make their model work, you've got to get in and out of that file. So um, I know one frustrating thing that, that we experience here at Synergy and certainly trial attorneys um, experience as well is you sit down and put a very very thoughtful argument together. And what you get back is a form letter. And that's because they're clicking a couple buttons and they're sending you something off so that they can move on to that next file. So it's just a, a part of part of the, the beast, I guess. So roughly speaking, how large of a team does a company like Rawlings have behind it? Because I think one of the things that most lawyers don't realize is how big some of these entities are that they are fighting against and the kind of resources that they've got to, to fight. Right. Um, I, I do think that Rawlings is one of the biggest. And the last kind of number that I heard was that there were 400 subrogation analysts. Um, their, their location is like the size of a football field um, on one floor, but there's three floors in that building and then there's two other buildings. So it's definitely a, a very big campus. It's not just for subrogation. They do have other departments as well. Um, for Optum, I feel like it's maybe more like 60 to 80, um, feels like less than 100. And then, you know, we've got FIA and Conduent and, you know, there's all those different um, companies that are involved. But it's not like there's just a couple people pushing paper. It's, it's definite um, large groups of people. I can tell you that Rawlings has huge training classes where they bring people in. Um, there's six weeks of classroom training um, after classroom training, you go to a um, special team where you have a dedicated team lead to answer all those questions every time you experience something for the first time, and you're in that protected environment for a couple of months before they release you to the football field where uh, you really start to, to ramp up your, your files and, and get to the 
seven, eight hundred, you know, number after a couple months. So I know you know this, um, that I was involved in an accident and, you know, our health insurance plan, which was an ERISA plan, but not self-funded, um, you know, I had to fight with them because I, I decided I wanted to negotiate my own lien because I wanted to better understand the process. And, um, you know, I had a pretty good fight with, with our, uh, plan, which was United health. And then, you know, so Optum and, um, you know, ultimately it, it got to the point where they basically said, this is it. If you don't take this, we're referring it to outside counsel and you can litigate. Mine had first party benefits too. So it, there, there was some risk, uh, here in Florida because of that. But anyway, my, my question stems from that experience, which is, you know, what, what is the typical, um, likelihood of something being referred to outside counsel to actually litigate versus just bargaining positioning and you know is that a sign that hey you know you've gotten to the bottom when they're saying hey this is it if you don't take this we're gonna refer it out yeah well i mean when it's being said it's not an easy question to answer but yeah yeah. Well, and really, I mean, I've learned that so much in this business, the answer is it depends, you know, it depends. There's so many factors that are involved. Um, so yeah, you got each situation is a case by case kind of basis. But um, if if it's being said, we're going to send it to outside counsel and it, we're going to litigate this, this is our final offer. There's a risk that they might do just that, but it also could just be a bark. Um, I know that when I was representing um, on that side and had a team of, of file handlers that would bring me files and I would put together legal arguments um, in writing, I ended almost every single letter with just that sentiment. Um, doesn't mean that I even had everyone reviewed to go to that next level. Um, but it was certainly a possibility and it was my warning. It was my bark. Um, and really, I, I feel like perhaps now, especially um, in the middle of COVID with the slowdown of auto accidents, slowdown of surgeries that have prevented more medical malpractice cases and all of those kind of things, um, that these subrogation vendors are feeling that as well. And that we we've even heard some of that that it, that their clients are getting more aggressive and wanting them to recover more in every opportunity and that is something that they have in their back pocket they do have outside counsel they are able to send it that way um, and there might be an uptick of it now because their books are are feeling the heat yeah i think that's good insight um so being uh, at Rawlings for almost a decade, what was it like to be hired and trained by a group like Rawlings? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I mean, it was definitely like classroom training and um, uh, lots of training materials. Um, they really, they have a really great training program, you know. Um, I mean, as much as here I am on this side and wouldn't want to admit that kind of thing, I mean, it's, it, it, the fact is they, they do. Um, so, really it's um it's training their way right it's their interpretation of the law and it's their scripting of what they think the file handler should say in response to an attorney saying x you know and it's all i mean it's it's very well um it's a, it's a well-oiled machine for sure but it's it, 
they have the answers and they have the answers that they want those file handlers to to put out. So um, I experienced it, you know, a, a decade, more than a decade ago. And um, over time, things just get better. So I have to imagine that they have continued to perfect that, especially since I've been gone. Um, other vendors, maybe not as much, um, some. Um, but I do feel like there are a couple where I'm like, oh, it's one of those. They don't seem to have as much knowledge or their interpretation really doesn't have any logic behind it. Um, so it so it definitely depends. Not all subrogation vendors are the same. That's that's for sure. But generally speaking, they're bigger outfits. They're well trained. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're you're not you're not fighting an unsophisticated foe. No, no. Even the defense firms that you see that are handling the subrogation, I mean, it's like, that's what they are. They are a subrogation vendor defense firm, and that's that's all that they do. So um, because it's such a specialized area of the law, if you're up against anybody that is, that's that's their bread and butter, and that's all they do, you're, you're in a tough spot, I think. Are there any insights you can share about the processes that a group like Rawlings or other groups employ in terms of agreeing to reduce liens? Well, that's one of those things that it definitely depends on a lot of factors. Um, so I can tell you from where I came from that um, a file handler has limited ability to reduce. They would then have to get their supervisor to review and that supervisor might have the ability to reduce a little bit more. Then there's the legal department that's above that that might have the ability to reduce a little bit more. And then there's internal committees that you would present it to. And then sometimes the actual external client has to review. So whether that be the actual insurance carrier or in the event of a self-funded plan, the actual employer group themselves. So there can be many different levels of review. And, and really that depends on the lien amount. It could depend on the settlement amount. It could depend on the state depend on the lien type. It could depend on um, the insurance carrier, the employer. Like, I mean, there's so many different things that really when you first, when you get a lien statement from whoever, you have no idea what what those hoops are that, that that file handler has to jump through. And really, I think that's the most frustrating part is that for a trial attorney, you're having this communication with somebody who doesn't have any authority, and then you've got to trust them to go present all the right information to perhaps get you the reduction that you're looking for. You know, and that's that's takes time. A lot of times there's delay. I mean, it's almost like the telephone game, right? Like by the time it gets to where it needs to get, I mean, who knows what's been presented? Yeah, and I actually experienced that myself because you know I finally got to, you know, one of the higher up attorneys at at Optum when I was negotiating mine. And it, it took, you know, three or four months to get to that person that ultimately, you know, I finally felt, okay, I think I've, I've got the person with that authority. So, uh, it, I think that's, that's interesting insight for, for attorneys to understand that, that specific inner working. So you, you've got a unique vantage point because you've been on this other side. So when you were on the other side, what were the top three biggest mistakes you saw from plaintiffs, lawyers, uh, in terms of the way they approach things when they were dealing with you? Hmm. Top three mistakes. Um, so it's a little bit of a tricky one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll start with one and we'll see, we'll see how we go. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, the biggest thing is 
not knowing which law applies, not not having enough understanding on what this plan type is, because from from me sitting in that seat, if I realized that whoever it was that I was talking to wasn't on the same level as me, then I knew I was going to win this battle. Um, and I hate saying that now. <laughs> so, um, but but it's true, right? Like it's it's you kind of size each other up in the very first interaction, you know. Um, so you want to make sure that you're arguing the right the right law that you understand. That, like if you if it's if it's a Medicare Advantage lien that you're not arguing all born, which is going to apply to Medicaid, you know, um, and, and that kind of thing happens. And there might be pieces in the all born argument that you want to present. But if it's not something that actually matters, you certainly don't want to start with it, you know. Um, so that's that's a big one. I would also say when it comes to those claim summaries, it can be tedious if there's many, many, many pages but you've got to review those closely and make sure that everything that's on there should be on there. And if you have bills and you've got, you know, your own demand where you know what specials you've, you've put together that you're making sure that that is accurate because that's your number, right? That's your starting place. So if that is, is incorrect and inaccurate, then, then you're, you're starting any argument off on the wrong foot. So I, I definitely saw a lot of attorneys, it seemed, just put it in their file and then didn't want to discuss it until the case settled. And that that's not a good thing. Um, so I definitely say acknowledge that claim summary and make your arguments about that relatedness piece early on. So know the law, which is, you know, interesting in terms of from what I've heard anecdotally from those who've come from the other side, for example, where, you know, the, the other side may say, well, this is ERISA and McCutcheon says we, we get full uh, reimbursement. It's, it's a self-funded ERISA plan. And, you know, that, that's not true. And, but I think there are some out there that don't really understand that there are techniques that can be brought to bear that will get the plan to, to ultimately reduce that lien they're tough, they're harder, especially if the language is really good because, you know, basically McCutcheon allows them to, to get around made whole and common fund if they expressly disavow it. But, you know, it's interesting um, that there is that. So that that's really great. And then to that, that, you know, disputing that unrelated care and making sure that that is pulled off early on are two, two great pieces of advice for the plaintiff's bar. All right, so now let's let's talk a little bit about what ultimately made you decide to make the switch from representing health insurance plans to now putting on the white hat and representing injury victims and, and doing doing the good uh, the good fight or putting up the good fight for injury victims. Yeah, well, I mean, it was definitely an opportunity, right? And I took advantage of an opportunity, but it was definitely something that I wanted, you know, um, they, they talk a lot in the subrogation world about the golden handcuffs and I'm sure that it exists in lots of different places, but I actually remember like right out of law school, I was working a temp job in Kentucky, uh, with yum brands, which is like KFC and, and Taco Bell and all that. And there was a paralegal in the legal department that I was working with who had worked for Equian and she knew that I was getting ready to interview for Rawlings. And um, she said, oh, no, golden handcuffs. So it was the first time I ever heard it. And at the time, it didn't, you know, it didn't 
it didn't register for me. Um, but I definitely understand it in hindsight. So um, especially even with the people that I've brought over and, and had join me here on the um, Synergy team, same kind of thing. I mean, it really is like their pay structure allows people to stay and build those emotional walls where you ignore that there is a real life injured person on the other side. And instead you're almost blinded by your own greed and it's not a good feeling, you know, but if you build a big enough wall, then you continue to do it. So I had definitely um, started to seek other opportunities because it just, I mean, lots of factors, right? There's lots of reasons why you choose to leave, leave a job. But I knew that if I was going to leave this job, that I was going to go work in a job that was more fulfilling and more aligned with what I wanted to do. So um, certainly appreciated the synergy opportunity and just recently celebrated my two year anniversary here. So, um, but really, yeah, it was just about being aligned so that you could end your day and feel good about what you're doing, you know? Um, and you can only kind of take that for so long um, where you're not doing that. So it's more about personal fulfillment, feeling good about yourself. Yeah. It's one of the beauties of, of what we have, um, you know, here at Synergy that we, every day we get to have the opportunity and privilege about improving lives. And you've heard me talk about that. And we, we had our, our all hands meeting today and talked about a particular lean resolution case that really embodied that, that idea of improving lives. I'm curious, um, about the ideology and culture that, that you came from, because, you know, I know exactly what you described when I was a defense attorney at a law school, I did insurance defense work. Uh, I somehow had to rationalize in my mind, you know, that this person wasn't, you know, wasn't really that injured or yeah. And that, that sort of, okay, you've got to convince yourself of that to be comfortable with what you're doing. I'm curious about like the ideology and culture of, of, a Rawlings in that regard, you know, because it, it doesn't seem like there's any heart there, right? It's just okay. We got a we got a job to do, and these people, they're, they're just taking money out of our client's pocket ultimately. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it really is like it's a company culture with these subrogation vendors to not care about that kind of stuff, you know? Um, so I'm sure trial attorneys who try to bring up those equitable factors and really try to like break down those walls of here's what this person has suffered. They've, they've had that door shut pretty quickly because that is just what happens. Um, so yeah, it's really it, it first, first thing that like somebody wants to hear about on that side is what did it settle for? And just like that, if they know that they're looking at a $20,000 lien and it settled for a hundred thousand, there's enough money here. And they don't, they don't care about any of the other factors. And it's, it's built in that way. It's an indoctrination in that, in that setting. And then along with that, in order to continue this machine rowing without any heart, as you say, you've got to like create restrictions so that you, so that people are focused on other things, right? It's almost like a distraction. Um, you know, I've heard from other people from other, other companies that it's, um, that there's a lot of, um, I mean, definitely like that micromanagement kind of thing, like making sure that you're checking all the boxes and it's, it, it puts you on this avenue of, um, being robotic, you know, and, and again, goes back to what I said, where you put a lot of thought as the attorney into a written argument on why this 
particular lien should be reduced and what you get back is a form letter like from a robot you know it didn't even really require somebody on the other side um, so that's that really is I don't, I don't think that any of them would admit it but ultimately that's like the machine that has been built and it's I think quite intentional so what's been your greatest surprise or learning moment since you've made this switch over to uh, the injury victim side of the equation? Surprise? Um, or learning. Uh, whatever, you, yeah. whatever you think is relevant. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that was, was definitely um, surprising to me when I f was in my first couple of weeks on this side was just how different all of these subrogation vendors um, operate, you know, so it's like I was 10 years in and indoctrinated and this is how this is. And then when you see this, this is the answer. And, and I, of course, especially like with a legal mind was looking at other things and I'm like, that's not the only thing, but, it, but that door was shut, you know, on, on me, like, nope, don't go over there. Let's stay over here. You know? Um, so I think as much as I thought that I knew exactly what the other side would say, there's been plenty of times where we've had a communication with a different vendor and their position is not at all what that other vendors is. So it's, it's kind of amazing. This is like the law, right? This is the gray space of the law and how, especially in this arena where there's not a lot of case law or guidance, there might be a statute, there might be one case, but it covers this one narrow point. What about everything else? Um, so it really is just like all of these different people with their own interpretations. And then there's these business models that have been created around that interpretation and then the buy-in that happens for the entire company. And then it just, it goes rolling, you know, and, and now you've got all these subrogation vendors that are, that are doing that. So just it, the, the learn was just how, vast the interpretation can be as it relates to this subject where I really did feel like I've got the answer right here. And I know the counter argument to that one, but then all of a sudden you realize there's five more and that, you know, that's, that's the challenge and that's interesting, but it was, it was a little bit of a surprise and a learn for me. So last question, admittedly, it's a bit self-serving for Synergy because we are an outsourcing partner for law firms when it comes to lien resolution, but are there two or three things that you would recommend to trial lawyers in terms of setting up cases for the best possible lien resolution outcome when they outsource? Well, I do think a, a big issue that um, becomes a bigger issue at the end if it's not addressed on the front end is this whole idea of pre-existing um, conditions. So um, this it definitely puts the trial attorney in, in um, like a sitting on the fence, right? So when you're arguing to settle your underlying case, you're arguing that absolutely everything is related. Your demand, your complaint, like it includes everything. Well, you've got to know that that lien holder is going to ask for a copy of that document when you're asking for them to remove claims. And they're going to act like because it's in there, it's related. And we all know that that doesn't mean defense accepted it. doesn't mean that you got paid for it. Um, so if there is some, if, if, if you know that pre-existing is, or if, if causation or any of those things is going to be a problem, keep that in mind as you draft it. And I, I mean, it is like definitely like a, a fence sitting kind of thing. I'm, I don't know exactly how you would do it, but I just challenge trial attorneys to kind of have that in the back of their mind when like you are using this demand to get the biggest settlement possible. But if you know, there's going to be a big lien, know that they're going to ask for it as well. So that's, 
that's one big one that often becomes a problem, even from the synergy seat where it's like, man, that demand is going to hurt us. And if only that attorney had thought about this part of it on the front end, we would be in a better place. So that's one. Well, I, I think that we've given a pretty good, you know, amount of information insight to, to our trial lawyer listeners. If somebody's got a question after they've listened to this podcast, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, email is definitely best. Um, so my email address is T for my first name and then my last name, K-E-N-Y-O-N at Synergy Settlements with an S dot com. So we'll put that in the show notes for listeners so that they can reach out to Teresa if they've got questions about lien resolution. And I want to thank Teresa for joining me today on Trial Review, and we'll see everybody on the next podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Review. You can find more at trialreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.